0: Section twenty nine of the Life of Mozart, volume one by Otto Jahn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Mozart by Otto Jahn, section twenty nine, chapter thirteen, part three. We do not need to look further than such church music to become aware that the Archbishop loved to bring the pomp and glitter of his royal station into the services of the Church such a task obliges the artist to use his art more and more consciously as a means to an end the inevitable result is inequality and exaggeration his genius and his work being often at variance the charm of mere grace leads to the danger of softness and effeminacy and fluent animation becomes meaningless superficiality the effort to be light and pleasing is manifest in these masses by their superfluity of detail we find an overabundance of beautiful melodies and harmonies, combined with great freedom in the treatment both of voices and orchestra, and in the working out of the subjects. There are isolated instances of deeper sentiment, and more poetic conception which are heightened in effect by the earnest technical skill displayed in their working out, and which give glimpses of happy inspiration, not belonging of necessity to the fundamental conception of the work." Unhappily, it is on these masses, in the composition of which Mozart's genius could only move within very confined limits, that his fame as a composer of church music chiefly rests. And musicians who have taken him as their model have striven most to imitate these, his least satisfactory works. The great resemblance in plan and mechanism to the masses of contemporary composers, such as Haas, Naumann, Joseph, and Michael Hayden, proves a strict adherence to the rules of composition that force a consideration of their work serves to heighten the effect of mozart's higher and nobler conceptions of his poetical sentiment and of that sense of proportion which regards a work of art as a whole and recognizes the limits imposed on it from without as the necessary conditions of artistic production many excellent qualities may be conceded to these musicians but none of them attain to the harmonious beauty of mozart The artist of a later age, who imitated and exaggerated the cramped and obsolete forms which had been the result of many circumstances as if they were in themselves an all-sufficient musical method, judged Mozart's works by their own standard, and found them in many respects unsatisfactory. Before condemning Mozart's readiness to adapt his compositions to external conditions, we must consider the mode of thought of the time. All art, more especially music, stood in the closest connection with the ordinary affairs of life operas masses instrumental works were composed when where and how they were required for particular occasions and particular performers occasions of the kind were eagerly sought for and furnished an impulse and incitement to the composer even when they somewhat hampered his productive powers exaggerated as the reference to external circumstances and mechanical resources became it formed the groundwork rightly understood of thorough artistic production the demand for church music was one that came with peculiar authority at salzburg since the priest who commanded it was considered as the mouthpiece of the church He also stood in the place of the sovereign, arranging the performances and paying for them. Respect for his position was both natural and proper. Mozart was by nature easily led, so long as his deeper feelings of antagonism were not stirred. Then he was firm and decided. Trained under the discipline of his father to fulfill every duty conscientiously, and to turn to the best account whatever was inevitable, he endeavored, as long as circumstances made it advisable, to satisfy the demands of the archbishop, and to make them conducive to his own improvement in this he was guided by a nature so completely that of an artist as not to feel cramped or bound even by real restrictions composition was a joy and necessity to him and a trifling impulse only was needed to set his poetical activity in motion this once accomplished external conditions served him for tools and their just and appropriate use soon became second nature to him The statement often made, and for the most part with a very imperfect knowledge of the subject that Mozart's masses are his weakest works, cannot be accepted without large reservations, and we have it in our power to give a decided contradiction to Thibaut's assertion that Mozart thought little of his masses, and often when a mass was ordered he objected that he was only made for opera, but he was offered one hundred louis d'or for every mass, and that he could not refuse. Only he used to say, laughing, that he would take whatever was good in his masses and use it in his next opera. The apparent particularity of this story is pure invention, employed, as so often happens, to give a color to mere conjecture, and the invention is clumsy. Mozart only wrote for the church in Salzburg. In Vienna he did not compose a single mass to order, and only one, the unfinished one in C minor, on his own account. Such fees as that above mentioned never put his constancy to the test. We know that he received one hundred ducats for an opera. Again thoughtlessness in the composition of church music is imputed to Mozart he had strongly biased opinions but they were honest convictions and his church work was always thoroughly earnest Roschlitz tells us that at leipzig in conversation on church music mozart declared that a protestant could not possibly conceive the associations which the services of the church awoke in the mind of a devout catholic nor the powerful effect which they had on the genius of an artist Mozart's education was calculated to make him a good Catholic, a conscientious observer of all that the Church prescribes, and reverence for her usages were combined in him with a clear and penetrating intellect. After his betrothal he wrote to his father, August seventeenth, seventeen 1782, that he had heard Mass and been to confession with his Constanze. It seems to me that I have never prayed so earnestly or confessed and communicated so devoutly as by her side, and it is the same with her. I find no trace whatever of Mozart's having looked with disdain upon Church music, His way of expressing himself to Padre Martini directly disproves the assertion. He took his church music with him on his journeys, expecting to gain credit by it, and sent for some of it from Vienna that it might be heard by von Swieten, a severe critic. So far from giving himself out as a mere operatic composer, who has a mean opinion of church compositions, he recommends himself for the post of under Kapellmeister, by saying, the learned Kapellmeister Salieri has never devoted himself to church music, while I have made it my particular study from my youth up. It is an unjust reproach also that Mozart robbed his masses for his operas. Among his numerous compositions of both kinds, a single Anus Dei, Kershaw number 317, a soprano solo, contains in its opening bars a slight suggestion of the aria Dove Sono from Figaro. Next in importance to masses must be reckoned litanies and vespers, and here we find the influence of the opera much more decided. The words did not readily lend themselves to musical expression, nor to the arrangement of the movements. If the severity of ecclesiastical form was once relaxed, the easier and more pleasing forms were more likely to be employed in those places where the words were most opposed to musical expression. The dissimilarity of the different parts was increased by the supposed necessity of also representing the severe style and of balancing a tour de force of counterpoint by a tour de force of execution. In this way, certain conventional rules had become law, leaving little scope for variety or originality. Common to all litanies are the kyrie with which they begin, and the agnus dei with which they close. That which lies between, the petitions varying according to the circumstances under which the litany was composed, determines its musical character. In the kyrie, other petitions are added to the kyrie eleison and christe eleison, which give scope for a broader and more varied treatment whereby the Kyrie becomes one of the most important and impressive movements. The Agnus Dei does not close with Dona nobis pacem, but with Miserere nobis, which prevents any suggestion of cheerfulness. The expression of anxious beseeching was generally softened into deep solemnity at the close. The invocations which form the substance of litanies are too numerous, disconnected, and wanting in climax to be well adapted for composition, and most of the petitions recited by the priest are equally incapable of definite musical expression the musical setting of the service to be appropriate must be strictly liturgical In the recurring refrain stamps it with a typical formulistic character should this tradition once be forsaken its place must be taken by a setting full of lights and shades often heterogeneous in treatment and accentuated in accordance with form rather than reason the distinguishing refrain could only be used to link together conflicting elements or else as a vehicle for shades of sentiment and a variety of expression would be given to the simple petitions ora pro nobis miserere which would be quite foreign to their nature. The litanies to the Virgin, litaniae laurentanae, were, on the whole, cheerful and pleasing. When the devout worshipper turned to the Virgin Mother, the image that rose to his mind was that of a pure and holy maiden, and the veneration for all that is womanly, which her worship induced, was apparent in the music as elsewhere. The tone of the litanies sung in Italy before the images of the Virgin in the streets is echoed in the compositions of most of the Italian musicians, and is perceptible in many parts of Mozart's litanies. The first litany in B-flat major, Kerschel number 109, composed in May 1771, is precise in form and firmly and ably treated, although in no very elevated strain. The Kyrie, as in short masses, is composed of a single animated choral movement without any definite development of the subject. The first part of the litany proper is divided between the chorus and solo voices, the soprano being most prominent. The whole work is interesting, melodious, and simple in its harmonies, in singularly popular in tone. Upon the delivery of the solemn Salus infirmorum by the chorus follows a quick vigorous choral passage to the words Auxilium Christianorum. The solo voices raise the appeal Regina angelorum to the queen of heaven who seems to shed the glory of her manifestation upon the minds of her worshippers. In the last movement the chorus comes in with Anustei qui tollis peccata mundi the solo voices answer with the prayer and the chorus winds up with the Miserere nobis. The tone is composed, more serious than melancholy, and rising in intensity towards the close. The actual mechanism is simple, the voices are seldom in true counterpoint, the modulations are freely and firmly handled, the accompaniment makes little attempt at independent significance. Far more important is the second litany in D major, Kerschel number 195, belonging to the year 1774, the same in which the masses in F and D major and the Finta Giardiniera were written the maturity of its conception, and the carefulness of its execution, make it worthy to take a place beside these works. The curie is a grand, lovingly elaborated movement, a solemn adagio, followed by a serious, sustained allegro. The parts are, throughout, in strict counterpoint, principal and accessory subjects kept well in hand, and carefully elaborated. The orchestra, too, is independently treated. The expression is appropriate and dignified, and over the whole is spread a peaceful calm, bespeaking the nature of the music to which it forms the introductory movement. The first section of the litany proper gives us the impression of a cheerful, one might almost say sensuous, spirit pervading each petition, but always with a tone of delicate moderation. The musical formation betrays the unmistakable influence of the opera, both in the solo soprano passages and in the aria treatment of the principal subject. Refrain is used with happy effect in the chorus, and the accompaniment is easy and flowing throughout. The whole movement is melodious and full of tender grace and harmony. In quite another style is the adagio next following, where the words salus infirmorum, refugium peccatorum, consolatrix of afflictorum, auxilium christianum, are taken together. The construction of this movement, the arrangement and gradations of the details, the alternations of solo and chorus, the characteristically careful elaboration of the accompaniment, are all so admirably calculated and balanced and the whole movement is pervaded with so much earnestness and depth of sentiment that beauty and grandeur seem here indeed to be wedded together. The following section, Regina Angelorum, is again in a lighter vein. The choruses are fresh and animated, but the interpolated tenor solo is operatic in form, and weak in invention and expression. The Agnus Dei is divided between a solo soprano and the chorus. The former, though evidently composed for executive display, is not without feeling and dignity. The short choral passages are excellent, both in workmanship and expression. Very evident, also, is the loving care bestowed on the orchestral score. Its main strength lies in the delicately elaborated string quartet. But the wind instruments are also effectively made use of, to produce lights and shadows. The mature and harmonious beauty of the numerous motifs and characteristic passages conveys the unmistakable impression of Mozart's genius. Of a third litany, for four voices without accompaniment, the opening bars of the Kyrie Kerschel number three hundred forty, in the Sancta Maria in C major, Kerschel number three hundred twenty five, and of the Salus infirmorum in C minor, Kerschel number three hundred twenty four, are unhappily all that is preserved. The litany to the Holy Sacrament, Litaniae De venerabili Altari sacramento, has a more serious character than the litany to the Virgin, but appeals to the Holy Sacrament, being of necessity abstract and dogmatic, are less suggestive of a musical rendering than those addressed to the Virgin Mary. On this account, an operatic style is more avowedly employed, but it is combined with solemn dignity and thoughtfulness, and the two litanies of this kind by Mozart are largely conceived and carefully executed compositions. The first in B-flat major, crucial number 125, composed in March 1772 after the Italian tour, strikes throughout the tone of the heroic opera, elevated by deep and earnest feeling the curie is introduced by an instrumental passage, announcing the principal subject which, after a short solemn adagio, is taken up by the chorus in Allegro Motto. The plan of the whole movement, containing a second subject placed as contrast to the oft-repeated principal one, and a running orchestral accompaniment, follows the operatic mode of construction. The first movement of the litany proper, Panis Vivus, is a soprano solo, which might have been transferred bodily from an opera seria, The chief passages are given to the word miserere, the solemn chorus which follows verbum caro factum, interesting from its delicate modulations, and a characteristic passage for the violins serves as an introduction to the agitated ostia sancta. Four solo voices give the chief motif in succession with different modifications and unite at last to rise to an appropriate climax. The chorus twice interposes with a short but weighty rhythmical passage, giving cohesion and dignity to the whole movement. A new climax occurs in the adagio, where the chorus repeats the word tremendum with an expression of solemn awe. Ah. The short, lively passage given to the next words, ac vivificum sacramentum, is only to serve as a contrast to the tremendum. The movement which follows, panis omnipotentia verbi caro factus, is again nothing but an operatic tenor song, full of passages and pleasing expression. The grave harmonies of a short adagio in B minor, viaticum in Domino morientium, prepare the way for something new. It was the custom to write a movement in elaborate counterpoint on the words of Pinus futura Gloriae, and Mozart was not one to shrink from such a task. The bass theme, answered by the wind instruments in a passage afterwards much employed, is announced with the force and decision of joyful confidence, and is then exhaustively worked out into a long fugue. The one theme, hardly ever abridged or altered, runs through the whole, but it is developed with an amount of variety, especially in the modulation and in the orchestral climax, and with so much fresh tunefulness that this work alone would prove the youth of fifteen years old to be possessed of the genius of maturity the annus is a soprano solo ornamented with many passages all alike truly and simply conceived and full of grace the chorus takes up the annus at the third repetition and brings the movement to a calm conclusion making use of the solo motif altered and simplified the finis i o d g inscribed by mozart contrary to his custom at the end of his score show that he set considerable store by this truly admirable work. The second litany in E-flat major, Kerschel number 243, composed in March 1776, also a carefully worked-out piece of music, displays the same arrangement. The operatic treatment of some of the parts is more conspicuous because its tinsel glitter is in more marked contrast to the mature earnestness of the work as a whole. The curie, expressive of mild calm, relieved by the agitation of the accompaniment, is simple, in plan and execution solo and chorus alternate the principal motif recurs at the end after a middle part of smaller motifs grouped together the miserere is delicately shaded and finely expressed after such harmonious renderings of a calm and collected mood we are surprised by the words panis vivus as an elaborate tenor song altogether in the style of opera seria in the succeeding movements where the text seldom lends itself readily to musical adaptation The hand of the master is visible in the admirable grouping of the larger sections and of the separate subjects, not less than in the true and beautiful expression of sentiment, and in the finely graduated and shaded unity of tone. The words verbum caro factum are used as a solemn introduction. The miserere has a fine effect, commencing without an accompaniment, as if moaned forth from an overburdened breast, then increasing in intensity to a cry of anguish, and gradually sinking back into itself." The next succeeding, Ostia Sancta, stands out against this dark background, its general tone as mild and consolatory as that of the Curie. Solemn grandeur predominates again in the Tramendum Ac Vivificum Sacramentum, where the words Tramendum and Vivificum are not separated, but are compacted into a connected symmetrical movement with the words Panis Omnipotentia Verbicaro Factus, in cruentum Sacrificium, Cibus et Conviva. The disposition of the harmonies is in strongly marked but cleverly arranged opposition, intensified by the orchestra. The stringed instruments celebrate a forcible passage, opposed by the united oboes, horns, bassoons, and trombones. This noble and deeply impressive movement stands alone, both as to form and intention. The next following, dulcissimum convivium, a soprano solo resembling a cavatina, is soft and tender in expression, and preeminently operatic. The charm of style, displayed also in the careful accompaniment, does not compensate for fundamental weakness. The Viaticum in Domino Morrentium is full of earnestness and very original in treatment. The soprano voices give out as subject the chorale of the hymn to the Holy Sacrament, Pange lingua gloriosi, as a Gregorian plain chant, accompanied by the wind instruments, oboes, horns, bassoons, and trombones, and two muted violas, while the violins are occupied with a quaver passage in pizzicato, generally in divided chords. The effect of the whole is surprisingly serious and dignified. The pinius futurae gloriae follows. It is in counterpoint and of complicated workmanship. The chief subject of six bars comprises the words Pinus futurae gloriae miserere nobis. But in the third bar, at the words miserere nobis, the three remaining parts were added. The subject given to them is differently elaborated along with the continuation of the chief theme. After the first working out, a second independent theme occurs. It is thoroughly worked out together with the first. We see more of the actual workmanship in this than in others of Mozart's works in Counterpoint, and the voices are treated less as such, and more as abstract vehicles for contrapuntal development. The Agnus Day is a soprano solo. The passages for the voices and the concerted treatment of the accompanying instruments give a uniform impression of grace and elegance. This movement has a certain resemblance to many passages of Mozart's later operas. At the close, the chorus, as sometimes with Haydn, takes up again the principal subject of the curie. And works it into a simple and appropriate ending to the litany. Mozart seems never to have composed an entire Vesper during this period, but the two final movements of one, Dixit and Magnificat in C major, Kershaw number 193, written in July 1774, are preserved and are serious works in clever counterpoint. The Dixit is quite in the style of a short mass, the different sections in counterpoint full of force and animation. The Gloria Patri is an independent movement, with a slow introduction to a short fugal movement in the words et in saecula saeculorum with a charming organ-point the magnificat is grander in design and execution the Virgin's song of praise forms a grand movement allegro moderato the theme of which from a third plain-song tune of the magnificat is introduced by the tenor, the bass immediately interposing a counter-subject. End of section 29, chapter 13, part 3.